Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. This is Tracy L. Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show today. We have a great show lined up for you. I am very grateful and I am humbled that so many people are listening to the show, both live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel, so thanks for tuning in. I created this show to support these brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I am interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Remember, there are always people who believe in the old guard, people who will say no to you, people who are invested in the system and the status quo. You don't have to buy their shtick. The system is always wrong. And here on the show, you'll hear people who are inventing their own systems. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers. And I'm on the chat now, so type in a question if you have any. Please email me between guests if you want to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSlatten.com, and that's T-R-A-C-I at T-R-A-C-I, L like lion, S like Sam, L like lion, A-T-T-O-N.com. In the coming weeks, we have some wonderful guests coming on. Next week on Thursday, October 7th, author and regression therapist Dr. Linda Bachman will talk about Between Life Soul Regressions and the Soul's Progress. On Thursday, October 22nd, novelist L.V. Lewis will talk about keeping up the steam in interracial romances. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am delighted today to have artist and atelier master Virgil Elliott with us to talk about painting, drawing, music, technique, and teaching. Uh, And he's also an author. Painter-writer Virgil Elliott, born in 1944, is best known as the author of the book Traditional Oil Painting, Advanced Techniques and Concepts from the Renaissance to the Present, published in 2007 by Watson Guptill Publications. 
acknowledged as a living master by the Art Renewal Center, among the many honors and awards he has received over the years, Virgil is widely recognized as an expert on historic oil painting techniques and oil painting materials of the past and present. He has written and published articles on the working methods and or the lives of Rembrandt Titians, Franz Halls, Artemisia Gentileschi, and the 19th century French artist William Bouguereau, among other things. He taught oil painting at the College of Marin in Marin County, California for a few years, Marin County, California for a few years, and has taught privately since 1982. Virgil has been an active participant member of the ASTM International Subcommittee on Artist Paints and Materials since 1997, which experience has broadened his knowledge of artist materials considerably and has made him the acquaintance of many experts in the field, including top-level conservation scientists from major museums, from whom he says he has learned a great deal over the years. Virgil Elliott keeps a studio in California's wine country, where he paints, teaches, and writes, and lives with his wife, singer, and actress, Annie Lore. From time to time, he has moonlighted as a musician, playing guitar and Renaissance lute, both as a solo instrumentalist and occasionally as an accompanist to, uh, to various vocalists. He feels that music and, ver- and visual art complement one another, and I do too. You can see more about Virgil and learn more about Virgil at virgilelliot.com, and that's V-I-R-G-I-L-E-L-L-I-O-T-T.com. Virgil, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, I hope I can live up to that introduction. Well, it's <laughs> Thank impressive. you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being on. So I always start with this question, and I know you have um, sent me some questions. Well, actually, before I start asking a question, I'm going to say that my husband, who's a classical figure sculptor, Sabin Howard, found you, I think, on Facebook uh, talking about what's wrong with the art schools today and with the art market today and he was so taken with the truth of what you posted on Facebook that he said to me Tracy you must get this man on your show so um, I want to hear more about that well <clears throat> the truth is always there for everyone to recognize it's just that some people don't really have the courage to speak it because they'd be going against uh, uh, the opinions of their peers or of people that, that they they feel represent the intellectual elite because they've been uh, brainwashed in college to think that whatever they hear from college professors must be the representative opinion of the intellectual elite and of course everyone is compelled you know by their desire to be seen as part of the intellectual elite, uh, you know, to keep their mouth shut when they see the truth and that it contradicts the things that they've been fed. And uh, so I'm an old man. I I no longer have the patience for that game. Actually, I never did, even when I was young. So to me, seeing the truth and speaking the truth is is not a difficult matter. To me, it's just uh, astonishing that more people don't do it. Well... I'm glad when people are saying the emperor has new clothes. So we will get into more of this. But here's a question I like to start shows with because I think it kind of gives my listeners a sense of who you are as a person and how you got to be that person. So tell us how you got started. You, you know, I, your uh, your voice is breaking up a little bit in some of the some of the things that you're saying. I'm not able to hear them all. Okay. I don't know Can what. Can you hear me now? Uh, uh, yeah, I can. It's intermittent. Okay, that's probably uh, an internet connection and possibly um or your phone. But tell us how you got started. How did you begin your journey and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have and when did you know you were going to be involved in art and the teaching of art? 
Was art a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? So talk about your childhood and lead up till now. It's a big question. Oh, my gosh. That's a long, long, long story. I'm an old man, and it started when I was two years old. Are you sure you want to hear the whole thing? <laughs> yes, start, and then we'll, we'll ask. <clears throat> All right. Uh, it, it's my mother's fault. Uh, she got me started right. with my very Blame first. mother. That's what everyone does. Blame their mother. Well, anyway, she, yeah, you know, there there are pros and cons to being an artist and to and to being obsessed with with being an artist it's not an easy life uh in today's society in this country anyway uh but my mother was college educated and an intelligent woman and she had artistic talent herself um, she gave me my first drawing lesson at the age of 2 years old in her notes i still have her notes She's not with us anymore, of course. But uh, I have her notes, and at 20 months, she wrote, draws well. Uh, I remember that lesson like it was just, you know, very recent. Uh, Wow. She wanted me to play. I mean, she didn't want me to go out and play with the mean kids in the neighborhood. All the kids in the neighborhood were mean and older than me and bigger than me and uh, cruel, sadistic little kids. So she didn't want me to play with them because their idea of fun was, you know, hurting smaller kids and animals. So she she bought me a blackboard that was on an easel, and she said, I, I want you to stay home and, and draw today. I don't want you to go out and play with those mean kids. And I said, well, I don't know how to draw. And she says, well, it's easy. I'll show you how. And uh, she wasn't like this the average mother, you know, who praises everything the child does and says, oh, yes, honey, that's wonderful, and pins it up on the refrigerator, no matter how bad it is. She wasn't like that. Uh, I said, what should I draw? She says, let's draw your teddy bear. And so <laughs> that's an easy <laughs> subject, and it was a, a smart first lesson because it, it, it's almost impossible to draw a teddy bear badly. But uh, she set him up on the table, and she says, okay, look look at your teddy bear and draw what you see. And I said, uh I don't know where to start. And she led me to figure these things out for myself by asking the right questions, like Socrates. You know, she says, what's the largest part of your teddy bear? I says, oh, it's his body. And she says, what shape is it? I said, it's round. She says, well, you can draw something round. I said, yeah, you're right. Okay, so I, I drew a circle. So, so far it was pretty easy. She says, what's the next biggest shape? And I said, that's his head. She says, what shape is that? Well, it was round, too. That was pretty easy. So I drew a smaller circle on top of the big circle. And I was, you know, the circuit was clicking in. I was beginning to figure things out. I saw that his ears also were round, and they were smaller, and there were two of them on top of the head. And so it's starting to look pretty much like him. And I made dots for noses, you know, for eyes, and the dot for the nose, and an inverted Y for the mouth. But he didn't have any arms or legs, and I was baffled by this at first because they were not round. And so I made, you know, because I was only two years old, I made stick arms and stick legs. And what she said next is really what set me on my journey that led me to where I am today at my advanced age uh, as an artist all my life. She says, step back and look at your teddy bear and look at your drawing and tell me what's wrong with it. So So you see, she fed me the idea that there was something wrong with it, but she she didn't tell me what it was. It's the origins of critical thinking. Exactly. So she had me step back and look at it, and the critical faculty clicked in, and I saw that the arms and legs of my teddy bear were not sticks. And uh, so I said, oh, I've got his arms and legs too skinny. 
And she says, ah. well, you know how to fix that, don't you? And I said, yes. And I drew sausage shapes, which is pretty much what they were. I mean, it was a simple teddy bear. And by golly, it looked like him. And I was just thrilled that I saw that I could accomplish something that I hadn't known I was capable of doing before. And the fact that she structured that lesson in the way that she did, asking me questions and leaving it to me to figure everything out, that was that was a brilliant lesson. That's That's the mark of a great teacher. And my mother was educated as a school teacher, and that was her profession at that time. Uh, and so, you know, she was very good at that. And she was always encouraging about my artwork all through my childhood. I, uh, you know, I was obsessed with drawing from that moment on, and I drew everything. I wanted to know how to draw everything. And my attitude mm-hmm. was, after I've drawn it a couple of times, I should know what it looks like and not have to look at it again when I draw it. And I grew up with that idea. I was I was basically developing a photographic memory, which has mm-hmm. helped me as an artist, but not only as an artist, but in all other aspects of thinking as well. Critical thinking really is what it boils down to, and that's not limited to art. People should realize that, that art education is essential to all education because it develops mental faculties that, that don't develop in in uh, in other ways, you know. But Virgil, you're saying something that goes against the zeitgeist, which is something I struggle with, which is that there's no, you know, there's this, uh, a trend in the zeitgeist that the, that critical thinking is bad. And I believe what has happened is that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and in our attempts to become a more inclusive society, we've thrown out critical thinking, which we need. Well, I've always been an advocate of critical thinking, and it's been a source of a lot of trouble in my life, of course. But, uh, you know, I'm on a campaign against stupidity, and I can't help it. If you can't think critically, you are stupid. (laughs) You You know, evolution has brought us to this point because human knowledge has continued to advance. People have become better and better at thinking over over the millennia. You know, and uh, to to find that in in one or two or three generations we're going to reverse that trend, that's unacceptable to me. I I agree, but I you know it's like you started off this your you know talking about your childhood by saying my mother wasn't like other mothers who said that everything I did was wonderful, and this is the the part of the problem with you know the so-called within quotes enlightened parenting has come to mean that you never give your children the fun, the foundation of critical thinking, that you never say to your kids, step back, look it over, and tell me. Now, did you really play a good soccer game? Is that drawing really any good? You know, is it really wonderful, that paper you wrote? Like, everything's supposed to be wonderful. Everyone wins all the time, and I think it's a big mistake. Oh, yeah, yeah. Build self-esteem despite reality. Uh, yeah, I'm. I, uh, <laughs> I'm very happy that my mother did not subscribe to that line of thinking. But you know, this was 19, in the 1940s. You know, shortly after World War II, I was born during World War II. So this was before a lot of that political correctness nonsense came along. <clears throat> so I'm an anachronism. You know, I'm a holdover from a previous time. I recognize that. But in you know, as f- regarding these modern notions. Uh, uh, in the German language, they have a word that I think applies to that. It's called Schlimmverbesserung. What it uh-huh. means is literally a bad improvement. In other words, <laughs> something that was thought to be an improvement, but that works out badly in practice. And uh, I, I mean, if there were not such a thing, the Germans would not have coined that word. So a lot of modern attitudes I regard as Schlimmverbesserungs. Uh huh. I agree. I agree. 
Tell us your thoughts on the old masters. I know we haven't we've left out all of your life after the age of about two or five or something, but tell us about your thoughts. Well, on the with old a masters. one hour program, we won't be able to cover it all. <laughs> <laughs> so the old masters. Okay, what would you like to know about the old masters? Well, what inspired you to write about them? What inspired what oh, motivated you to all write right. book okay. for oil painting? What is your attitude about the old masters? You know, I'm I'm just hoping you'll take this and run with it. Oh, I can do that. I can do that at great length uh, if anyone it. has the patience to listen to it. Uh, you know, after after my first drawing lesson, I I became obsessed with drawing, and my main influences were illustrators comic book artists, Harold Foster that drew uh, uh, Prince Valiant in the in the funny papers. And then when Mad Magazine came along, I was impressed with that. And I wanted to be a comic book artist at that time because that was mostly what I saw. Uh, but the more realistic draftsmen among them were the ones that inspired me the most. However, my mother took me to an exhibit Again, it's my mother influencing me. She took me to an exhibit that was, uh, I grew up in St. Louis, and so this this was a traveling exhibit that came to the St. Louis Art Museum, and it must have been 1955 or 56. I was 12 years old. Yeah, I guess, yeah, it was 56, I guess it was. Anyway, uh, it was a, a, a show of old master paintings that came to the St. Louis Art Museum, and my mother took me to that. And uh, I was certainly impressed with all the old master paintings that I saw, some more than others, however. Uh, I walked around a corner after seeing a number of paintings by, by artists whose names I didn't know at the time that were quite impressive. But then I saw, as I walked around the corner, a painting that did not seem to be a painting. It seemed to be a living man. And it was a painting by Rembrandt. And uh-huh. uh, it was a painting that had been done, I knew, some 300 years, more or less, ago, you know, prior to that time. And that the man in the painting was obviously going to be now dead, and the man who painted it would be now dead, you know, for 200 and something years. And yet the impression I got from looking at that painting was that this man is alive now. Not only do I see him he is seeing me and acknowledging my presence. I got wow. the impression that that he had moved just before I had laid my eyes in that direction and that he was about to move again and about to speak to me. And this was the eeriest sensation because it contradicted what I knew, but that impression was so powerful. That inspired me. That was the moment that inspired me to... You know, go in the direction that I went that led me to today. Uh, that changed me from wanting to be the next Norman Rockwell or, or, or Harold Foster to, uh, you know, pursue a more realistic direction, uh, mm-hmm. more highly realistic direction. And uh, what made that painting, I wanted to know how that could be done. If if a person can create something from simple tools and with simple tools and from simple materials that could move people that profoundly 300 years later after we're dead, that's got to be as close as we can come to creating magic. And Mm -hmm. I want to know how to do it. And I was obsessed with figuring that out from that point on. 
And I was already a pretty good draftsman, and I pursued it diligently as I had from that very first lesson with my teddy bear. And uh, I got better and better as I went. Uh, The key to becoming good at painting really rests in becoming good at drawing. There are so many people who are on the wrong track. They want so badly to be good painters that they don't bother learning to become good good draftsmen first. And they're never going to be good painters if they never learn how to draw. You've got to master the basics before you can really expect to paint well. Because drawing is what develops your eye, your visual perceptivity, uh, your critical faculties. These are essential to a painter, and you cannot paint well unless those faculties are well developed. So anyway, that that began my pursuit of the old masters. I then, well, uh, in my teens... After after I uh, got out of high school, I went in the army because I did. You know, this was when there was the draft, so I had to spend three years in the army. But I did find a good instructor uh, in Germany. I was stationed uh-huh. in Germany for two years. Where in Germany? Uh, Mannheim, Germany, uh, which is about ten miles from Heidelberg, and uh, the USO. Uh, had apparently made a deal with the University of Maryland for a uh, foreign exchange. I don't know what it was, but they they sent an instructor over there to teach art to the soldiers and to the soldiers' families. And uh, this man conducted a uh, an evening class right on the base where I was stationed, uh, Turley Barracks in Mannheim, Germany. And uh, he, so far as I know, his 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 school of thought, the way he taught, was similar to that of Charles Hawthorne. So I assume that that was he was a student of Charles Hawthorne or of one of Hawthorne's students. I don't uh-huh. know this. He didn't say so, and I don't even remember his last name, unfortunately, if I ever even knew it. I just knew him as Ken, you know. But he was an instructor at the University of Maryland, and this was 1963-64. And uh, he didn't really tell me anything specific in the class except he said tonight we have this model tonight only you'd better paint fast if you want to get something worth looking at by the end of the the session Uh and and he says if you want to get finished he says i suggest that you ignore detail that you begin with large amounts of paint on your palette and large brushes and you block in the large shapes get your canvas covered with paint and adjust the shapes after you've covered the canvas with paint you you adjust those shapes until they they read right to you and then if you've still got time to put some details in put in the more important ones you won't have time for them all and it won't make a better picture if you do put them all in and this was that's really all he did he set that up and i followed his method and at first i thought oh there's no way i can get done you know at the end of this session but uh-huh. i learned very quickly and and uh i took to that method like a duck to water and i was astounding myself with how well i could paint just just following that that simple you know set of guidelines and uh so i became a much better painter at that time just just because of of you know that situation and he just set the situation up and let us take off. Now, I would not have been able to do that well if I had not already been a good draftsman. I want to mm-hmm. point that out. Yeah, Sabin, but this was all know, a prima painting. My husband, Sabin, but, is working on a drawing book, and he's calling it Drawing the Foundation of Art. 
Well, and he's very correct. That's a, that's a good title for it. Because without drawing, you're, you're not going to become a good artist. You're not going to become a good painter. You're not going to become a good sculptor. You've got to, because that develops the critical faculties. Your, your, your eye, your taste as an artist develops when learning to draw. And you need these things. They're essential. I mean, there's so much more to art than that. But that's, you know, that's the starting point, really. Mm-hmm. So, when I got out of the army, I went to college. I I, uh, I thought foolishly that I could take art classes in college, and that I would therefore be able to learn how to paint like Rembrandt and Vermeer. You know, because I had seen paintings in the museums that inspired me so much by those artists and some of the other old masters, but in particular Rembrandt and Vermeer. And I wasn't able to paint like that at that time. So I was pretty good, but I wasn't wasn't good enough to satisfy myself with what I was already able to do. I wanted to I wanted to be able to do things as well as Rembrandt and Vermeer. And I, I foolishly thought I could find art teachers in so called uh, institutions of higher learning that would be able to teach me these things. Uh-huh. Uh, how foolish I was, <laughs> but you know I was young and naive. I was 21 years old when I got out of the army, and I started taking art classes in colleges. And uh, I quickly found that I was just barking up the wrong tree. This was the heyday of abstract expressionism. My teachers were not better painters than I already was, and they were trying to discourage me. They were very aggressive in their in their efforts to discourage me and all the other students from pursuing realistic artwork at all. They did not want anybody to learn how to draw as well as I already could, and they did everything they could to turn me in the other direction. They said, oh, you've got so much to unlearn. I said, I did not pay my money coming to a so-called institution of higher learning <laughs> to unlearn anything. I came here to learn more. I'm pretty good, but I'm not as good as I wanted to be. Go ahead. What were you saying? Well, Sabin talks about starting art school and how people look down on him because he was so obsessed with the figure. And he also talks about his teachers, Walter and Martha Erlbacher. And Walter, I guess, was one of the darlings of abstract expressionism when he kind of walked away from it and said, no, I'm going to do, you know, the figure. I'm going to do realism. And he was sort of roundly, you know, Scolded in the art world for that decision. Well, that's 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 a <laughs> that's not surprising to me. What I what I've gone through and seen, uh, and I've heard many stories similar to mine. Oh, by the way, the the story about being inspired by Rembrandt. Uh, I spoke with with uh, Nelson Shanks, the great painter who just died not too long uh-huh. ago, uh-huh. Uh, a, a few years ago, and he had a story almost exactly like mine. He was 12 years old when he first saw a Rembrandt painting, and it inspired him and moved him the same way it did me. His story is almost identical, except that that uh, it was Kansas City where he saw the painting. Oh, well, I was, back to. I was- uh, I was 13, and I went with my French class to London and Paris. And in Paris, I went to the Louvre, and I looked up the Daru staircase, and there was the winged victory, and it it just exalted me. It, it lifted me to a totally different state of being. And I've written about that moment, but it, for me, it was um, the winged victory. Every artist has a story like that. Uh, and and uh, what this boils down to, I mean, this is really what... This is the value of art. It can serve to inspire people. 
if it's done well. It has to be done well in order to inspire people. And it has to be done by someone who has an inspiration. And to be able to to put that inspiration down in a manner that it, it will serve to inspire the people who witness it, who look at it, hear it, or whatever it is, because it's the same in music as well, uh, sculpture, painting, all, all the great arts. The real value is that they can serve to inspire people. But there's a kind of anti-value thing going on, like the anti-value, don't inspire people, degrade them. I find, at least, you know, I look at, you know, I'm a writer, and in the publishing world, there's just so much bad, there's so many bad books out there, so much bad stuff. And it's, it's yes, I agree. I agree. It's, they it's fall under the category of that, that German word that I talked about, Schlimmverbesserungs. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of bad ideas that have gained public acceptance. And they've gained public acceptance because people don't trust their own perceptions enough. Here is here is my theory on this. And people can argue with me all they want to. They'll, they'll be wrong, but they can argue. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Inside each of us, we have... We have a sense of what is good, a sense of quality. It cannot be defined. It can't be written down in words adequately. And this was one of the points that the author and philosopher uh, Persig, Robert Persig, made in his in his book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a strange title for a philosophical book, but it's a great book. And his central point is we have a sense of quality inside us we and and we know what's good and we know what's right it's in there where it came from i won't speculate but it's there in all of us and in some people it's dormant it's never been awakened and they don't trust it they've been brainwashed to 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 not trust it going to college especially taking art classes they 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 discourage people from discussing this or or, or recognizing it or from acknowledging it as having any value uh but that's a self-serving thing on the part of people who themselves lack the ability to create anything that inspires anyone and so they create a smoke screen a smoke screen of bs to cloud the issue uh but if people just learn to trust their own sense of quality they're not going to be misled as easily it's just that people are easily bamboozled but a great work of art a great performance in music in any of the any of the arts can inspire people and awaken these sensibilities that are deep down inside them that maybe have never never received the stigma before you know the stimulants rather to bring to bring them to the front but a, but this is what happened to me when i was 12 years old and i saw that rembrandt painting and it's it what happened to nelson up. shanks it, and this, I have this theory that that if you took a mafia hitman to a performance, an opera, and he witnessed a great performance, you know, you know, for an example, maybe you know, Luciano Pavarotti singing Desun Dorma, that's going to change that man forever. It's it's going to awaken his better qualities as a human being. They're there inside of all of us. I believe this, and I cling to this belief. It's an important belief to cling to, whether or not it's true. Well, I have a story and I about think, that. I think after that, the man would not be able to go back to being a mafia hitman. He would be a better person just for having experienced that, because the better part of him would have been awakened. Well, I, and I have this a, is what I, I think that we should strive it. to do. 
I, I have sorry, a story what? about that waking up. I have a story about that waking up. You know, Sabin has a studio in the South Bronx, and he was moving the Aphrodite sculpture. The Aphrodite is a life-size female sculpture. She's extremely beautiful and graceful. I don't know if you've seen an image of her. Have you seen her? Oh, yes, I have. So he was moving her. So he's outside on the street on Bruckner Boulevard in the South Bronx with this sculpture, and all and 20 people or 40 people swarmed him, telling him, oh, my God, where did this come from? Is this from a museum? Did you do this? Is How could you do this? And these were people, some were lawyers, there were garbage men, there were postmen, there were the florists from the shop next door. They were from all walks of life, all socioeconomic strata, all races, both genders. You know, God only knows probably several different sexual orientations. The commonality was, they loved sculpture, that they were just so magnetically attracted to the Aphrodite, they had to come up, stand there, gawk, and say something. That it cut across all the kind of exterior things that we think separate us. That's exactly what I was getting at. Art awakens an appreciation of quality. Quality is something we can recognize we can't define it. We can't be talked into believing that it's somewhere where it isn't, or maybe some people can. But when, but it's unmistakable when you're when you're faced with it. There's there's no getting around it. This is great, and it turns people into better people. And this, to me, is the best function that art can can uh, uh, can serve. Well, do you think this is? Do you think you're following this? Do you think you're pursuing this line of thought is also about you becoming a better person yourself? Undoubtedly, you know. I mean, it's. I never had any choice, really, in in in, in the you know what I was pursuing in my life because, like I say, I was two years old when I got started with with my obsession with art, and uh, that's too young to think about whether or not this is a practical career to pursue. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, who I would be if it were not for that, I don't know. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood full of full of mean people. And uh, I might have grown up to be just another one of them if it hadn't been for that lesson in drawing. I don't know. I mean, I've always been me, and I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be someone other than me. I've been in situations where I was compelled to be someone that was quite different from my true nature. But I'm aware of my true nature, and uh, I regret all the instances in which I <laughs> I was in situations where I had to ignore that and, and act in a different way. But art is its something that awakens an appreciation of quality. Uh, it brings quality into people's lives. It, it, it really is so much more essential than people in our educational system seem to understand these days. Um, it, you know, it helped me learn everything when I was in school. Because I had developed a visual memory, I was able to get good test scores on everything. Uh, because after I read the book, uh, when it was time to take the test, I could visualize what the words on the page looked like when I was reading the book. It was like taking the test with the book open. Learning was was an effortless endeavor. That's useful. And, and uh, based on this, my own experience, uh, I I have the idea, and from what science reading I have have done tends to bolster this, that uh, human intelligence is not a fixed quantity at birth. 
brain cells, unlike computer chips, have the ability to grow extra storage capacity if they are challenged to the utmost. And the earlier in life this, this occurs, uh, the more the brain can develop as, you know, more intelligence can develop. Uh, the physical structure of a brain cell is such that it can actually grow little nodes to hold more information once it reaches its its initial capacity, its full, and instead of saying, okay, that's it, you can't learn anymore, it grows these little physical appendages that allow it to hold more information. And so uh -huh. the earlier this process begins in life, the greater a person's intelligence can, can be if the process continues throughout life. And uh, education starting at the age of five is really too late as far as I can see. Uh, you look at the great the, the people who really accomplished great things in history. We'll use Mozart as, as an example. His father was a classical music composer, and he was teaching Wolfgang while he was still an infant in the crib, teaching him music. And look what he became. And that's that's an example. Another example that I point to is Bertrand Russell, uh, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. His parents were free thinkers, and they began teaching him mathematics when he was still a baby in the crib. And he first excelled in the field of mathematics. Uh, by the age of 20, he had co-authored a, a, a major book in the field of mathematics, Principia Mathematica, co-authored with uh, Alfred North Whitehead who was, I believe, one of his college professors. but uh, And then he went on to become a great philosopher as well. But getting that early start is the key to it. Education really should begin in infancy. Otherwise, you're, you're wasting the first five years of people's lives. And getting back to that zeitgeist that you were talking about earlier, <clears throat> where people think, oh, you just want to make your children feel good about themselves. That's diametrically opposed to reality. Make them feel good about themselves, but give them give them something to challenge their minds so that their minds develop. People who grow up in a deluded world are ill suited for life in the in the real world. You know, they grow up feeling good about themselves. Yes, they have confidence and they feel loved and all of that, and that's and that's important. But they've got to have the ability to think because in this world, the ability to think is a survival asset. Without that, you're vulnerable. You can be taken advantage of, cheated, um, you're, you're really, you can be exposed to all sorts of calamities. So it's better that people learn how to think than just, just grow up feeling good about themselves, even if there's really no real good reason for it other than, okay, yes, your parents love you. Anyway, uh, these are <laughs> among the many topics that I go off on tangents on, and I apologize if I've stayed no, too far from what we started with. I think no, I think it's fascinating. I think you, you know, it goes back to the basic thing you're talking about, which is the foundation of critical thinking. So, is this part of what motivated you to write your book, Traditional Oil Painting? Well, I'll tell you what what motivated me to do that. We'll get back to the part of my story where I was going to college and running into all sorts of opposition from the faculty in four different colleges, one after another, where I took art classes. And I don't want to name any of them because none of them deserve to have their names mentioned in con connection with me at all, But because I got nothing of value out of any of them to speak of. One exception, and I'll, I'll mention that if we have time, but that that will go later. But I became so outraged. I mean, I wasn't just disappointed that they took my money and, and, and 
tried their best to discourage me from pursuing what I wanted to pursue. Uh, they they didn't teach me anything except that they were full of crap, and there was no <laughs> way they could uh, dissuade me from my pursuit of you know what I my direction my goals were already established. They were not going to change that. Well, I became so angry over all of this when I finally gave up on the, on the college and university system altogether. I said I'm wasting my time and money. I was furious. I was an angry young man. I was young and full of passion. And just saying I was disappointed would be way understating the truth. I made it my I made a vow to myself when I was what 22 years old, I think I was. I said this system is so wrong. It so violates my sense of everything that is right. I'm going to change it if I can. I will learn to paint the way I want to know how to paint. However, I can find out how to do it. If I have to figure it out for myself, I will. And once I get good at this, I will make sure that anybody who wants to learn how to paint realistically will be able to find out how from me if they can't find anybody else to teach them. That is great. And and so uh, I was many years later, I was teaching art. I had an art class. And my students asked me one day, this was 1985, they said, what book can you recommend to us that has everything in it that you're teaching us in this class? And I said, well, there isn't one. There are a lot of books out there that have good information in them, but along with the good information, there's usually something that isn't so good. And in any case, there will be something missing. You know, There's not a book out there that has everything in it that I'm teaching you in my class. And as if they had rehearsed this before I got there, in unison with their fingers pointing at me, they said, then you have to write one. Uh-huh. And I realized, oh, yeah, I promised myself when I was 22 years old that I would I would help people learn how to paint like this, learn how to draw and paint like this. And so I realized, yes, I do have to write that. And that's what got me started on it. My students insisted on it. And it was a matter of me fulfilling this promise that I had made to myself, that vow that I made in you know, my younger years. Uh, I was 22 years old, so I thought, okay, this is what I have to do to fulfill that promise I made. Well, I and I didn't question. realize at the time that it was going to take me as many years as it did, but once I launched into the project, I wanted to make sure that I was writing a book that was good and that everything I wrote in it was going to be correct and not be just another book that's full of you know, bad information. So that took me across Europe several times, going through all the museums that I could get, get to, and that's, uh, these are low-budget trips. I had almost no money, you know, and I had I had shoes that weren't good and I had blisters all over both feet from walking all over these cities in Europe uh, but I was happy to be there and to be seen with these I mean to be seeing these paintings and and analyzing them and looking at them with my critical faculty intact and taking notes and learning everything I could from them I made it a point to get to know all the best artists I could I could get to know and uh, uh, also people in the uh, in the painting conservation field top museum conservators and uh, and paint chemists. I wanted to make sure that the chemistry that I was uh, writing about in my book was correct and in accord with, with the current level of scientific knowledge. And uh, so this is one of the things that differentiates me from other artists is that, that I am scientific-minded as well. Let me and, ask uh, you, I became a, yes, Virgil? please. So I have a yes. question in the chat room. One of my listeners um, te- asked me, 
I'm a very good photographer, but seem to have zero painting and drawing talent. My father was a great uh, painter and photographer. Is it possible for me to learn? Stick figures seem to be my oeuvre. So how would I, how would you answer that? Well, I started out with pretty simple things too. Nobody's born with talent. This is this I think is a myth. You know, we're born with a certain amount of potential, but I don't think that's a fixed quantity either. Nobody's good at anything that is challenging the first time they try it. You have to just keep trying it. You know, people come up to me all the time and they say, "Oh, I can't I can't even draw a straight line." I say, "Yeah, well, Keep trying, and you'll get better at it. You know, <laughs> nobody's good at anything the first time they try it. I mean, when we're born, we don't know how to do anything. We can't even keep our own saliva in our mouth. You know, whatever's in our intestines just comes out. <laughs> you know, all we know how to do is is make noise and messes. You know, everything that we learn comes after that. So you know, apply yourself to learning. So you would uh, but, tell you know, the it, listener it, that he can learn. It is possible for him to learn. How should he start? Yeah, it depends on what age he's at. Now, you know, people learn better these things in childhood, just like languages. You know, if people grow up in a in a family that has uh, a number of languages that are being spoken more than one language, the children become fluent in all of those languages effortlessly because the mind is primed for learning in childhood. Biological programming is is that way. Uh to try to learn a second language as an adult is much more difficult. We have to learn much, I mean, we have to work much harder at it in order to, to you know, gain command of it. And it, okay, it's so my listeners probably said, not even possible to, to attain the level of fluency in adulthood with something like that, that a person would be able to, if you know, starting as a child. But well, my listener uh, says he's 57. The listener is 57. So how does he learn? Not to draw more than stick figures. Well, he should just start with a realistic idea that uh, he's going to have to be satisfied with making progress. And progress occurs one small increment at a time through, through diligent application to the task. And, uh, you know, will he be able to rival Rembrandt? Maybe or maybe not, but that might not be the most realistic goal for a beginner. But he'll be able to do better the more he does it. Uh, but start out drawing simple things like an egg, like like uh, you know, simple geometric shapes, a cone, a cylinder, a block, things like that, and study the basics. Learn perspective, uh, learn anatomy. All of these things are the basics. All the great artists through history learned these things when they were still students, and usually by the time they were in 19 or 20, they had already mastered them. Uh, so learning these things as an adult will require more more effort, more time, and uh, you'll have to be realistic enough to be satisfied with small increments of progress because that's, that's uh, really all that can be realistically expected, small increments of progress. And... Uh, uh, getting a late start at the age of 57, there will be that'll be a handicap that a person will have to work very hard to overcome. Uh, I have had students who started with me at the age of 40, and these were women who had children in their teens that were, uh, you know, taking up most of their time and energy, and yet within two years they they were close to master level studying following the course that I prescribed to them. Now these were exceptionally intelligent women, and intelligence is a factor. And uh, I can't say that, that, you know, below a certain intelligence level that that, uh, that sort of result would be possible. 
but uh and that's another politically incorrect notion that I will acknowledge uh people don't want to believe that something is only possible for people above a certain intelligence level but that's the fact of the matter as I have observed over a long long lifetime well you're flying in the face of the zeitgeist today Virgil but keep flying <laughs> no i'm flying in the face of it i i re- recognize that i am an anachronism i'm a holdover from a previous time in many ways uh, but I think that the direction, you know, these these modern notions aren't based in uh, sound thinking, and they need to be opposed. People tend to be overly influenced by peer pressure, you know, and television is a major influence in people's lives. Thank goodness there was no television when I was a small child. In the world before television, people used their brains more to fight boredom when they were home from work at night they would draw they would paint they would play a musical instrument almost everyone played a musical instrument and the closest thing to television was radio but your imagination was called upon on radio shows to come up with the visuals out of your own mind so your mind was not just inert you know uh, in neutral you you had to have parts of your mind working back then in order to fight boredom and that was a common thing when television came along well at first it was just a you know a, an amusing novelty but it became the dominant force in in our society and not i don't regard that as a good thing uh because it caused people to just sit there with their minds passive in a, a semi trance while they're being fed all sorts of stuff, and whatever they were fed, they tended not to even question it, and uh, that's unfortunate. You know, you, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> you know, my father said, no TV and no sugar. He was a submarine sailor, um, not very well educated, but a prolific reader, insatiable reader, but he, when he was home, when he wasn't out on a sub, he said, no sugar, and except for fruit and no television. And, of course, at the time I hated him bitterly. But as I got older, I realized he was right. Sugar is not so good for the body, and neither is television is not so good for the mind. Smart man, smart man. I wonder if he was about my age. <laughs> uh, yeah, when, he, would, when, he would be. He died of, he was a heavy smoker. You know, he was in the Navy, heavy smoker. He died of lung cancer many years well, ago. Well, that was but, too bad. Well, yeah. he uh, He'd be one year older than you, I think. Well, uh, it's too bad that he was a smoker. He'd probably still be with us if it were not for that. That's another irrational thing that I can't can't reconcile <laughs> with logic. Smoking cigarettes. I was smart enough to quit smoking when I was 15 years old myself. <laughs> That's good. That's lucky. People believe in the but, smoking fairy. They think that it will never happen to them because the lung cancer fairy will come and keep them from getting sick. Well, you know, cancer is just one of the problems that comes with smoking anyway. I mean, I, I can expound on that, too, but we might be straying quite a bit from the the, uh, the subject yeah, that most people to want to hear question. me talk about. Tell me about associating philosophy and art. Talk to me about that. Well, I've I've already associated some of it there, talking about, uh, about the concept of quality and uh, how art really should be focused on that and that that the greatest function of art is to bring people to an awareness of quality and to you know not be so easily fooled and so easily misled you know if they live in the world of words alone uh there are and this is one of the points again that Robert Persig was making in that book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance uh 
there there is a kind of thinking the reason he incorporated zen into the title of that book is uh the essence of zen is another mental faculty that needs to be developed in order for people to be able to see the truth and this mental faculty it's been referred to as right brain faculty now i will avoid the arguments that some people might raise and say oh it's, it it's not really in the right brain whether no matter what region of the brain it resides in i know it exists because it's a highly developed faculty that i personally have and the people who dispute it they're just telling me when they argue about it that in them that capacity is not well developed but zen I call buddhism it the shit is detector. I call it the shit detector. There it is. That's exactly right. You know, <laughs> or the bullshit like detector. Right. You know that faculty. Detector. That you know it. It that right brain faculty. We'll use that term for lack of a better one. Uh, can see the truth and identify it as the truth instantly without going through all these convoluted left brain processes that involve words and visual language because you have to recognize. I mean, not visual language, but verbal language. Verbal language has its limitations, and we have to recognize that. And, and uh, you know, Aristotelian logic is wonderful within its limitations, but we have to understand that there are limitations to it. And this, this, was, this is the point of Zen. It's basically to bring to the fore these right brain mental processes because the left brain processes, if you're overly trusting of them, can open you up to being misled tremendously, as most of the 20th century demonstrates when it, where the subject of art comes up. People don't trust their own perception, their their, their own sense of quality. They, they have been brainwashed by the kind of pressure that I and all the other art students received when we went to college in art appreciation classes, etc., uh, where they're telling us that bad is good and good is bad. And they want us to believe this, and people are impressionable and young when they go to college because most of them are just fresh out of high school. I was a little older at the time, which might have helped me. But but uh, they tend to think, okay, college professors are smart people, and if they tell us this is true, then it must be true because they're smart, and I want people to think I'm smart, and so therefore I've got to play along with it. Even if it doesn't make any sense to me, I don't dare betray my own ignorance by speaking up and saying, hey, that looks like crap. You know, uh, <laughs> if they tell us it's good, we're supposed to believe it's good, you know. And people don't trust their own judgment, and that's what I want to encourage people to do. Trust your own sense of quality, and if something is bad, don't let somebody talk you into thinking it's good. Because there's a lot of people out there who have a self-serving interest in discouraging people from appreciating things that are beyond what they themselves are capable of of doing. That's true. That is very true. There's a common fallacy that's being taught that you know are not being taught necessarily, but it's widely accepted, and that is people assume that if if they can't do something, it must therefore be impossible for everyone. Mm. And and they'd like for this to be true because it makes them feel better about themselves and their own limitations. And this is this is why some of these scholars have written about Johannes Vermeer, the great artist, great Dutch artist, and 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 have come up with these suppositions that he must have painted with the aid of some sort of optical device. And that psychological me- mechanism at the bottom of that is they can't do it, and so they assume that no one could do it unless they had some way of cheating, uh, some some aid that they, they would rely mm-hmm. on that would enable 
results at that level of quality. Well, they're barking up the wrong tree, and that's not an idea that should be encouraged at all. There's absolutely no proof whatsoever from the time that that uh, Vermeer existed associating him with a camera obscura or any of these other devices. I've, I've, uh, seen, those, I've seen those theories. There's also uh, a crazy thing. They're very popular caught. theories among people who don't know how to draw and paint very well. It makes them what? feel better about themselves. Well, cool. People who can do it, they laugh at those theories. That's true. But there's also confusion between art and self-expression. And I'm talking about the zeitgeist again, where any old thing you slap on canvas is wonderful because you're expressing yourself. And people have lost sight of the fact that art requires discipline. And they don't want to hear that for the same reason, that discipline's hard. Drawing and painting like Oh, yeah. Discipline these days, is, is it carries a connotation of punishment. You know, and one of the most popular phrases in 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 uh, uh, that we hear is no-brainer. So as if you know, the prospect of not having to use your feeble little brain is so attractive that it must be a good thing if you don't even have to think. I, you know, that whole line of thinking is uh, that falls back to that German word I was talking about, Schlimmverbesserung. That's a bad improvement. It's not an improvement at all. It's something that people thought was a good idea, and it isn't. Well. Virgil, we've got it, it, three minutes left. So please oh, my gosh, where did the time go? I know. I could talk to you for another hour. In fact, you and I will we'll schedule another show because I think we've barely scratched the surface of what you have to say, which is fascinating. So please tell my listeners where they can find out more about you and what you have coming up. Well, I am on Facebook, and I have a website, and I uh, sometimes remember to update my website from time to time. I'm technologically challenged, and I recognize that. But my website is www.virgilelliot.com. That's Virgil Elliot stuck together like it's all one word, all lowercase letters. And uh, I'm on Facebook as Virgil Elliot 9. Strangely enough, there are at least eight other people named Virgil Elliot on Facebook. So I'm I'm the ninth one. <laughs> but uh, I and I wrote a book, Traditional Oil Painting, which is now being published by Random House, and it's available on Amazon.com. And uh, I have a forum, a group on Facebook called Traditional Oil Painting, where I continually update the ideas that are in my book because new information always comes along and things need to be updated from time to time, especially where science is concerned. Human knowledge is constantly advancing. Well, that Virgil, thank you so much for being on this show. And I am so grateful and you were amazing and wonderful. So thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I, I hope I didn't dis- disappoint anyone. No, you were amazing. Thank you very much. Tell me more. So, Listeners, I'm going to um, tell you thank you for tuning in for this very lively show with the wonderful, amazing, brilliant, and completely iconoclastic and unorthodox Virgil Elliott. You can find out more about Virgil at virgilelliott.com, one word, two L's, um, two T's, and Elliott. And please come back next week at our regular time Thursday at 1 as Dr. Linda Bachman talks about our soul's progress through eternity. And thanks again for listening. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.